Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's August the 9th. It's 8 a.m. or just after 8 a.m. on the West Coast of the United States. I hope you're all having a good beginning to the week. We've done a number of shows recently on the nature of the family, particularly the American family. We've also talked extensively, of course, about corporations, about firms, about economic organizations. But we haven't done a show which compares or even thinks of the family as a firm, as an economic organization. My guest today on the show, Emily Oster, a best-selling New York Times writer and economist, has a new book out, The Family Firm, A Data-Driven Guide to to Better Decision-Making in the Early School Years. It's the third book in in a trilogy of of books that Emily has brought out about the nature of the family and of child rearing. Emily, uh, is it fair to say that you are comparing the family with a firm, with a with an economic organization? Is that the core argument in your book? That's your message. I I think the message is is more like uh, there are some lessons that we can take from the way that businesses think about organizing themselves that can make our family lives happier. So I think it's not um, it's not so much that your family has to be a business, uh, but that there are some ways in which we make decisions or choices in businesses that if we took that kind of deliberate structure to our to our parenting lives, uh, we might be happier. Is happiness the goal, Emily? Uh, you're an economist. Can you measure happiness? Is there data about happiness? There is data about happiness. I mean, I don't think it's the thing that we most frequently uh, that we most frequently measure. Um, but I, uh, I do think in some ways that should be our goal as as families to, to be um, not our only goal, but an important goal to be to be happy, to feel like we are living the the life, the sort of structure of the life that we um, that that we want. If you know, to the extent that we can, or at least to the extent that it's in our control, that we have made choices that that deliver some kind of happiness or contentment. Yeah. You think most people who work in corporations are happy? I've always got the impression, particularly the kind of books that get written these days, that most people, particularly in large organizations, feel really miserable. They're they're turned, if you like, into data. They they become data points and they're somehow losing their humanity. It's, of course, an old trope when it comes to critiquing corporations. So, you know, I, I... I mean, I, that may that may be that may be. Um, I think some people like their jobs more than more than others. I mean, I think I draw a distinction here that it's not so much that this book is about like your your house should be a corporation where people are treated like um, like employees. I think I make a joke about about that, um, but but much more that that there are this there's deliberate decision making in corporations, that there's ways that sort of well-run firms think about making decisions and that that's the piece of, uh, that's the piece that we should take into our, uh, into our family lives. And I think that if you sort of dug into like, what are people unhappy with in their, in their jobs, it's not the deliberate decision-making, it's other aspects of their jobs. It's, you know, other things that people, um, that, that people don't like. So I think that's, I'm not suggesting we sort of bring those pieces in as much as that we, uh, that we bring in the pieces around, 
uh, being deliberate and thoughtful about the, the choices that we that we make. Speaking of happiness, Emily, is the, the goal of your book to make parents happy or children happy? Or are those the same thing when it comes to what you call the family as a firm? I think that the that in some ways those those are the same. I think the that uh, that the goal is to is to make the family structure the make the family unit uh, the family unit happier. You know, of course, when you are parenting, uh, there will be moments in which your kids are not are not happy with you. Probably there'll be moments in which your partner's not happy with you either. Um, I think you know some of this is about sort of thinking about this kind of global happiness or the the kind of contentment with the way things are are running as opposed to sort of every moment being um you know being being happy that sort of you want to end the day thinking like I put the the things that were important to me first that I prioritized the things that were important to me and that I lo- lived my day I had the day that I I think that I would like to have and that or at least I got where I could given the constraints um outside and that's really for the family unit overall not just for not not for any particular person uh, your book, which is a tremendous read, congratulations, by the way, I'm sure it's going to be another of your, your bestsellers. Um, you have a, a very loyal following, and you're also quite controversial in your own way. Uh, your book's quite autobiographical. Um, you, of course, are an economist. You teach at Brown. I think you're the, the child of academic uh, economists. Your husband, uh, I think, is an economist or a labor market expert, also teaching at Brown. What's it like to be a parent? Uh, as an economist, do you think economists bring a particular skill uh, to parenting? Not really. Um, you know, I think that uh, that we all bring our own perspectives to our to our parenting. I think that um, you know there were certainly weird aspects of my uh, of my childhood or the way that my parents explained their decisions. That uh, tell me more, Emily. I love weird things, especially in childhoods. I, mean, I know that that their naming of you had a a kind of an economic element or a, or a, or a sort of a, a rationalistic element. So, yeah. That, so the naming is just, I think the naming is just like straight up weird. So my, my, and as that probably nothing to do with economics. So my, my mother felt very strongly. This is sort of like the, the late 1970s um, in the kind of feminist movement and the idea of equality. And she didn't like the idea that, that, uh, that the children would all have my father's name because she did not change her name. And so when they were deciding uh, what, our, what our last names would be, they flipped a coin to decide about me. I'm the oldest. And then they alternated. So actually, each kid has – the kids have different, have different last names. I don't think that's – I mean, I'm not sure that's, a, that's an economist thing as much as just s- something weird about my parents. Um, but uh, but you know there were also pieces that were there were much more sort of you would you would link directly with some of the ideas in economics. So um, you know being told you know the reason that we don't go uh, grocery shop and instead we have groceries delivered is because you know the op- our opportunity cost of time is high, which is is you know a way that I think many parents could have just been like, well I don't want to do that because it like takes too much time. This was sort of framed in the idea of opportunity cost, and I think that did that, they use that term? How old were you yeah. when they introduced the term? of opportunity cost? I don't know, five or six. I mean, like, this is like, this is just, because the thing is, it's not that you would introduce it to teach somebody that. It's just like, that's how they talked, right? And I think this is the thing <laughs> that people, like, that's how that's how we talk in my head. That's like, my husband do you, had, like, do you and your husband, Jesse Shapiro, talk to your two kids like that too? Yeah, for sure. So because you use the term opportunity cost? Definitely, frequently. <laughs> 
Are you, uh, are, are you proud of that? I mean, do you think that that is a model that, because you're a very influential thinker and you have very loyal followings. As I said, some people don't like your work, but most people do. Um, do you think that you're sort of arguing from a particular position that makes it hard for other people to pursue that highly organized, rationalistic, economic model of parenting? So I think I would distinguish between sort of like what is the language you use to describe things where there's a reason that we talk a particular way, which is that that's like a language that my husband and I, you know, use at, use at work. It's just a different, like it's just a language to talk about a concept that I think anybody could talk about. Um, you know, I, I think that there are pieces of, of what I do, you know, what I, what I talk about that may be more or less difficult to, um, to replicate. But I think in, in some ways, you know, some of what I'm pitching in, in this book uh, with decision-making tools is the idea that in fact, like there isn't some, you know, secret magic to, um, to, to these choices that it is, um, you know, that it is in fact sort of sitting down deliberately and thinking about what do you want Tuesday to look like uh, that is going to deliver the Tuesday that you, that you want. And that has something to do with being an economist or even being a person who uses a lot of spreadsheets. It's just about taking the time to recognize that you need, uh, that you need to do that if you want to create uh, a sort of life structure that, um, that is what you, that is what you hope to have. I mean, it seems as if your book is, um, this book in particular, The Family Firm, is a handbook against domestic chaos. It's, it's a way of, of, of organizing family life in a successful, and well, I wouldn't say successful way, in a, in a non-chaotic way. Um, what's wrong with chaos, particularly in families? So I actually, I would say, I think there's nothing wrong with chaos if chaos is what you hope for. And I think some of the pitch here is that that it is useful to say what you want and then be able to think about achieving it. So if you if you like, there are people who will be like, I just I love just like sort of like catch as catch can kind of like just every day sort of figuring it out anew. And if people people are running around and we're like, like that's that's the way I want to do it. I want to like I, I don't want to be stuck in some structured mold. I don't want to have every day be the same. I just want everything to be sort of different. And I want us to be free. I, I think that's great. There's like nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with that. But if you wanted your family to sit down together every day, every night at six for dinner, and then you don't achieve that, that will, you will be less happy than you, uh, than you should be. And so I think this is not about saying chaos is bad or structure is good. It's about saying, you know, you you want to say in advance what you want and then think about how how to achieve that and if what you want is chaos then you know there are ways to achieve maybe more chaos maybe you're not achieving enough chaos uh and if what you want is something that is different then maybe you sort of think about how to how to achieve that so i think it's not about um it's not about not wanting chaos it's about you know planning your chaos emily it seems over the last 30 years particularly with what some people might call sort of the, the neoliberal revolution that We've seen the crisis of the American middle class, this dramatic ending of the middle. It's happened across the economies and it's happened in domestic life too. We have this upper class, this aristocratic, meritocratic elite. Oh, I think you, you're certainly representative of and uh, those are the kind of people who read your books. And then we have an increasingly uh, miserable uh, underclass. Angus Deaton, for example, the Nobel Prize winning economist at Princeton writes about this. To what extent do you think 
this kind of book is a reflection of that, uh, that it's almost like a, a handbook for this new meritocratic aristocracy, which, of course, as I said, you're symbolic of. So I think we sometimes fall into the pattern of thinking that that uh, that choice should be the privilege only of people who have privilege and that good decision making or sort of thinking about these things is something that you you only have if you have the kind of resources to do that. And I think that I would push back a little bit on that and say that, in fact, you know, part I think part of the issue that we are running into in some of these spaces is that people feel that they are they are not making choices in a thoughtful way, uh, and that that in fact like those decision kind of those kind of decision tools are most useful if you are uh, if you are are constrained. Um, so you know, I mean, I think these are issues I think a lot about in the sense that you know much of my academic work is uh, is more focused on kind of how we think about generating equity and on the kinds of inequities that we uh, that we face. You know, why is infant mortality higher in you know in some groups than others, and what can we do about that from from a policy standpoint? So, um, so you know, I think this is a the sort of disconnect between you know what you what I think you perceive, which is like you know these books being kind of serving a particular. Uh, particular group versus off sort of who I would like them to serve and also uh, the groups that I think about most in my in my academic stuff you know that is a that is a an issue that I that I struggle that I struggle with sort of thinking about and and how to address but the issues I think in the book which are really interesting and, and I'm part of your class too they certainly resonate resonated with me whether or not to send one or two children to private school the issue of sleepaway camp, um, the issue of smartphones, although I guess that's a universal one. Yeah. These, these are generally not issues that um, for, a, for a one parent family are relevant. How do we democratize the family firm? How do we make books like yours, not books like yours, but arguments like yours relevant to people who are struggling economically, who don't have the time to worry about sleepaway camp and private schools? I think there are a lot of places in here where we could actually use some of these tools to try to help people make choices that are more relevant. So, for example, there's a huge amount of stuff in the book about uh, about charter schools. And actually, you know, the question of do I send my kid to a charter school or not is much more relevant for families often that live in uh, less well-off school districts who do not have good public school options. And I think it is also a choice that a lot of families struggle with the question of, okay, like, is, is this the right choice for, uh, you know, for my family? So I think that there's, um, there is a way that those kind of, you know, these sort of like, we could think about how can we scaffold that decision in a way that would be helpful for, for people. And yeah, it's not the decision about sending your kid to, to, Sleepaway camp is actually a much more important decision, probably than um, than than that than that kind of decision. So I, I mean, I th I'm not sure I'm not sure the answer there, but I do think that some at least some reasonable share of the stuff that I talk about in the book is not a decision that is only made by people who are uh, rich. There's of course a long tradition of utopian writing from Plato to Thomas More to Karl Marx, who argue that the family is a huge problem that it needs to be broken up and that it's a um, it's a vehicle for privilege. And again, for better or worse, that seems to be a reality today. Do you believe in the family? Do you believe in arguments that suggest that perhaps children should go through some sort of lottery or that there should be some sort of collective ownership of the state when it comes to children? 
I do not think there should be a collective ownership of the state when it comes to children. I mean, I think that that parents are uh, probably best equipped to think about uh, to sort of think about choices around their uh, around their kid. Now, that's different from saying we shouldn't be providing more support for families and we shouldn't be providing ways that we can equalize opportunities across kids. I would separate that from sort of saying that like kids should live in in a sort of you know alloc be allocated by by the state. I mean, I don't think anyone realistically thinks that's that's something that we should do. I do think we need to look and say, hey, you know, there's an awful lot of privilege that comes with the luck of to whom you are born. And that there are places outside the US where we have uh, where those those links, you know, while they are still there, are maybe there to to a lesser extent. I think some of what happens is the the sort of supports that we're providing for families are really limited relative to what we would see uh, what we would see elsewhere. And I don't think it's unreasonable to suggest that we might make those supports better, whether that is by providing, um, you know, better educational outcomes, better childcare outcomes, better paid family leave, a lot of the things that that exist elsewhere that sort of make up a social safety net that we have, uh, that we have sort of abandoned. Emily, what do economists make of the concept of love? And how does the, the idea of love fit into your, your, your book, The Family Firm? I don't think economists think too much. Uh, think too much about love, so I'm not sure that the sort of broad picture. It can't be quantified. It can't be turned into data. It can't be. Can't be. Yeah, exactly. Can't make it in, in utility in utility terms. Um, you know, I think from my standpoint, like underlying all of this is like the, you know the 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 family is our family is made up of people that that we love, and that's part of what makes parenting hard is that you is that you love your kids so much that you want to do right by them. You you so much want to do right by them that I think it it it's it's almost it's almost painful and, and over and overwhelming. Um, and I think that there are moments in which our kind of love for our family can get, get in the way of good decision-making. It's not the way I would, it's not quite the right way to put it, but I think we sometimes overstate how, how far we can get with love and that, and we sometimes, I think it's, it's reasonable to say that, um, you know, you can love someone and disagree with them. And you can love someone and still want to talk about, you know, whether you, what time your kids should go to bed and mm. disagreeing about that is not the same as saying you don't love them. I think we sometimes equate that, that like somehow we sort of think disagreements about these kind of practical issues are a signal that we're not functioning well. But I think in, in many ways, sort of thoughtful disagreements can be a signal that we are in fact functioning well. I mean, my sense is the family has become an increasingly central unit, particularly for the the upper class in America. Do you think that there's a connection between that and the sort of the crisis of intermediary organizations? Uh, the, the, the sort of the, the, the Tocqueville, of course, famously came to America in the 19th century and spoke of the value of these organizations as the bedrock of democracy. We've had lots of shows, Michael Lind, for example, University of Texas, a political theorist, talking about the crisis of these institutions. Do you think that the family, and again, this isn't a criticism of you or your work, is simply too strong because of the crisis of other institutions? It's, I mean, it, it, it's interesting whether it's too strong. I certainly think that, you know, the family has beca becomes more central when we rely less, when we are able to rely less on other, uh, on, on other institutions. But I think that, in, you know, inherent um, in kind of our in our lives is that our families and our kids and our are going to be very are you know are going to be central now that's different from saying they would need to be central in in kind of decision making and that you know and that we would we would want to 
to push all of these kind of choices onto the to the family. I mean, I sort of think about this in the context of of some of the coronavirus stuff, where I think we pushed a lot of decisions onto families without giving them much in the way of tools to make those choices. Uh, and I think that really wasn't that really wasn't fair. Um, and it and it you know didn't it didn't serve people well to have to be their own not only you know be their own parents and make all the regular parenting choices, but to also be some kind of like systematic COVID expert because nobody else was was kind of helping. You uh, you're quite you've been quite controversial. Here's a headline from New York Times uh, with photo of you. Uh, she, meaning you, fought to reopen schools, becoming a hero and a villain. Um, how has the, the COVID epidemic, and you, and you write about this in some detail in the book, how has it changed your concept of parenting? So, you know, I think that I, um, the, in some ways, the, the sort of biggest, uh, the biggest thing for me was the recognition of the loss of, of control and of the sort of, the the sense in which, you know, I I live a very structured. That may life. have been a good thing, Emily. No, I think it may have been a good. I mean, well, I'm not sure that COVID, but I think there, you know, there is not COVID, obviously, but the, the fact that you yeah. felt a yeah. loss or you had a lot of loss of control. Yeah, I mean, I think that there was, um, you know, there's a there's a that realization was was probably important for me. I think that you know there also was a a piece of of kind of which I think does make it a little bit into the book, um, or at least into how I thought about some of the pieces of the book around kind of recognizing. Uh, what my kids, what my kids were like, and and sort of meeting them a little bit more where they uh, where they were, which was interesting and I, I think illuminating. Uh, we uh, we had uh, I'm sure you know his work, the Yale University um, writer, political thinker. He's part of Yale Law School. Daniel Markovitz. He's he's been on the show several times, and he's written about the. The fact that the meritocracy, the American meritocracy for whom and about whom you write, um, are miserable. Um, does that worry you? Do you agree with Markovitz's thesis? Do you think that we're bringing these kids up? And, and, and I would perhaps you, your book is part of this uh, part of this sort of paradigm. Um, are we bringing them up to be too controlled, too structured, too miserable, too ambitious? I've, I mean, I think it is certainly possible. I think people have said versions of this about earlier earlier generations, but I think it's you know it's hard to um, it's it's hard to to know um, exactly you know what that uh, what that is going to turn out like. I will say you know I think you know from from my standpoint, um, sometimes when you say you know run your family like a farm, people sort of read that as like use a spreadsheet to get your kid into more activities. Uh, and, and I'm not, I'm not sure that, I mean, that is not the, that is not the intention of this, of this kind of structure. I think there is a, there is a moment, um, maybe more of a moment now than there, than there has been to kind of step back and say, you know, what are, like, what are you trying to achieve with your, with your kids? How much are you trying to achieve independence or, or happiness and how much are you trying to achieve some kind of like, I don't know, a, a achievement. And I'm, I'm not sure that everybody, if, if given a moment to think about that, would necessarily come down on the idea of okay, like the main thing I'm trying to achieve is achievement, and so I, um, you know, I, th I think we have an opportunity to 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 rethink um, some of those some of those choices. Emily, you've made your name, as I said, this trilogy, the family firm, expecting better crib sheet books, written as a distinguished economist, uh, undergraduate degree and PhD at Harvard. 
uh, sort of bringing the wisdom of the economist to the family. But what has the family taught you as an economist? How could studying the family help the science of economics? I mean, I think you know, we, there's there's a long history of studying the family in uh, in in economics. You know, I was at Chicago for a long time um, and lucky enough to you know get to know a little bit Gary Becker, who who sort of wrote on the economics of the family a, a very uh, a, a very long time ago. Um, and you know, we I think we we have used some of these uh, these sort of understandings of people's incentives and how they think about their kids to try to inform uh, some of our understandings of how of how economies work uh, work more broadly. I mean, ultimately, the the household is the is the smallest firm in many of our models, uh, which you know is uh, is kind of the way the way economics uh, works. And I think economists have gotten like more into studying parenting and and families. And I don't know how much of that is. Um, is I don't know I don't know how much of that is like thinking that that speaks to the economy more broadly or just you know economists become parents like I did and then they think oh like I need to navel gaze a little more I'm not sure uh, Emily like you I'm a parent although my kids are slightly older they're in their late teens early twenties uh, this new book um, is what about the the kids the age of eight to twelve five five to twelve Sorry, something five like that to yeah. 12. I always think the most, I mean, and I guess this reflects parents, they always think that the years their kids are living through are the most important. I tend to think that the most important years for kids now are their late teens, early 20s, and sort of entering the workforce and defining themselves as adults. What very broadly and and, and simply do you think are the most important things to bear in mind as a parent uh, of children between the age of 5 and 12? I think that there's, I would say sort of two things. So one is that although every decision feels incredibly important, um, no one decision is the, the only decision that's going to to matter. And no one decision is going to either make or break your, your kid. And I, I think, um, you know, w- within the space of the decisions most people are, are making. Um, and so I think that that's kind of, there's a little bit of a, of a pressure relief there, um, but also a little bit of recognition that, you know, you kind of can't shape you can't like make the kid that that you that you envision. Like your kid is not a piece of clay for you to make into your own image or the image that you had hoped that you would um, that you would be. And I think that's I think it can be a little bit of a hard a hard recognition, but but an important one. I think the other thing that I sort of think about a lot in this in this age is you're already raising adults, and you, you sort of said like that you know you think the most important time is this kind of late teens, early 20s, as people are kind of trying to establish themselves, the foundation for doing that is happening now. And if you kind of like, if while you are parenting kids, you are parenting them to be adults. And that means um, that means sort of thinking, for me, thinking about what are the responsibilities I want to be giving the kids? What do I, how do I want to be preparing them to to be themselves, to sort of to, to leave me, unfortunately, uh, and and kind of be their own their own people, and I think that's um, for me that's been a really hard a hard piece of it, but but one that I you know I try to lean into a little bit. Uh, at the end of the book, in the acknowledgments, you say you were determined not to write another book. Uh, you've written two. Everyone who writes, uh, my experience yeah, as a, an author is. While you're writing a book, you you always say, uh, "I'm never going to write another one." As soon as you finish, you think about the next one. Uh, it's true, but, uh, yes. Emily. I'm assuming we're going to get a book on 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 the teenage years. We have to. You've written these three. It's almost like uh, now we're waiting with with bated breath. There has to be a fourth book, doesn't there? 
Uh, we'll, we'll see. Um, you know, my kids, a lot of my, uh, my writing is informed by my own, uh, my own experiences and, um, and my kids are not at that age yet. So I guess we will, uh, I guess we'll, we'll find out, but as you are say, you, I'm are you fearing the teenage years? Are you yes. expecting, uh, emotional, sexual, psychological explosions of some sort or other? I feel that, um, you know, I, yes, I'm, I, I found the teenage years hard. I, I fear the parenting of um, either of my children in the teenage years, like we all do. So I'm afraid. Emily, uh, let's end. Uh, I can't resist asking you the all important question that all parents have to deal with the smartphone question. You talk about it a little bit in the book. Um, at what point, when you have a child between five and 12, should you allow them to use a cell phone, a smartphone? And what should they be fearful of? And, and what shouldn't they worry about? What does the data tell us? So I think there's kind of two, two so the cell phone and the smartphone are not the same question. So sometimes, you know, well, I mean, we all have uh, a yeah, smartphone. I mean, all cell phones are essentially smartphones. And even mine has a picture of my kids on it. Amazing. My kid has a flip phone. So they, uh, they sell those. Buy those. You can buy those. only only uh, only children yeah. of economists are allowed. It was those, hard right? to find. It was hard to find. Um, you know, in terms of these of the smartphone, I think that there's a there's a kind of um, th there are, there's good and bad, right? So so on the one hand, uh, the um, there there is actually some you know evidence that kids can connect with better with their peers that they have like that the cell phones can be good for people's socio-emotional development and then on the flip side there's kind of cell phones can be bad and when you sort of read the literature on this it's kind of like some people said they were good some people said they were bad like on on average they're kind of they're kind of neutral and so i think that 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 means that it is really very specific to kids. And so there's probably a lot of value in this particular space to trial. So, you know, if you're 12 year old- So you're basically saying you don't know. No, absolutely not. I don't know. I, and I don't know for a very specific reason, which is that I like, it depends on your kid, which is an argument for giving them a phone and telling them in three months, you'll see how it goes. Isn't the problem though with all this technology that again, our quote unquote class um, are so preoccupied with this and our kids are going to be fine, but it's the, the children of one parent families whose parents working two or three jobs who are never at home. They're always the ones most vulnerable to technology and media. I think that that's true, but I think that that is a group that is vulnerable to these, to, to a lot of questions, a lot of issues that have nothing to do with phones or, or not having phones. Well, Emily Oster, it's a real honor. Uh, looking forward to this. Your book, uh, The Family Firm, A Data-Driven Guide to Better Decision-Making in the Early School Years, I think it's going to be another bestseller. Must read for all parents, especially if you have kids between the age of 5 and 12. Congratulations, Emily, on the book. Uh, finally, uh, this is a, a book uh, podcast for LitHub. Uh, is there a particular book alongside yours that you would encourage parents to read or perhaps children to read about the family. What's your favorite book about the family? So, uh, so I, I would say I, there's a, a there's a book by Tom, a guy named Thomas Phelan called "The Manager Mom Epidemic," which is basically about delegation and delegating to your kids and delegating to your partner. Um, that I is the last sort of parenting book that I read that I really thought, "Huh, like I'm not doing it right." 
Well, you do it right, or certainly you do the writing right. Emily Oster, author of The Family Firm. Honor, we're going to have you back on the show in the next Great. couple of years when the book about the teenage years can't, comes out. I can't wait. Thank Excellent. you so much. Thank you so much. Nice to see you.